What's up, young adults? How we doing? Good? Come on. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. We have not met. My name is D. Chan. I get to serve with the staff here at Young Adults, so I just want to welcome you. If it's your first time, or if you've been a faithful, I'm glad you're here. We're currently going through a series called Faith That Works. Faith That Works. And then we're going through the book of James. We just finished last week with chapter one, and today we're going to dive into chapter two. A little bit of background about the book of James, if you've just started, uh, you're not familiar with the book, is it's a book in the New Testament. It is considered to be one of the epistles, and the epistles are essentially a written letter to a specific group of, or audience. And the book of James, who James is writing to, is the 12 tribes of Israel. These were followers of Jesus who were split because of persecution, because of hatred towards believers of Jesus. And what James is trying to do, it's kind of a pastoral moment, he's trying to say, hey, be encouraged. Jesus is still good, he's still alive. Remind yourself of what he's done in your life and continue moving forward. Alongside the book of Proverbs, James could be probably one of the most practical in your face books in all of scripture. So we're gonna dive into James 2 today, but before we start, let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. God, thank you for this group right here that we get to gather, get to worship you. Lord, would you just speak to us, speak to our hearts. Um, whatever people came through here with, Lord, we would be able to lift up that to you. And, and God, would you give us peace that surpasses all understanding. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. All right, flip your Bibles to book of James, James But before we start James 2, we're going to go into James 1, which gives us kind of this premise of the rest of the the scriptures. And James specifically, James 1, verse 27, James just finished talking about not just listening to God's word, but doing God's word. Because as believers, we're called to listen, but also to do, to apply these principles to our lives. Because what happens is James knows that if you are a believer in this world, Your eternity is forever change. You've professed faith in this room that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Your eternity has changed. The problem, I mean the power of sin has been taken away by the blood of Christ. But the problem of sin is still here. And James understood this. So he says in 1 verse 27 of James, says pure and genuine religion in the sight of God, the Father, means caring for orphans and widows and your distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. He understands that if you're a believer, you're gonna have trials, you're gonna have temptations, the devil's gonna try to distract you from your walk with God and push you further away than you could ever imagine. And James is saying, watch out. He's telling the audience, watch out. Even though you've professed faith, that does not mean the devil stopped looking at you. And he says at this end, it says, refuse to let the world corrupt you. And one of the things that James talks about that the world's trying to corrupt us and influence us with is the topic of tonight's message. It's really the start of James 2, and it is the sin of favoritism. The sin of favoritism, which means tonight's message title is don't show favorites. 
And before we go and dive in, I want to think of what the world thinks of favoritism. We, we look at social, we live in a social media world. Uh, we, we're pretty materialistic in the things that, that portrays to us. Uh, a lot of marketing goes towards our eyes. We're visual creatures. So James says, hey, you, you might have an inkling towards favoritism. And, and the world is saying, that's, that's okay. The world tells us, hey, it's all good. Pick your tribe. Stick with your tribe. Because it's like, the old adage like, your vibe attracts your tribe. Y'all ever hear that on like a hippie sticker or something or like someone's back of the Jeep? If you have that, it's okay, not hating. Um, your vibe attracts your tribe, what's up? And, and the world says that and I don't think there's necessarily a bad thing, but I think scripture is reminding us and telling us, hey, you can't just be favorites towards one people group of a certain class, certain status, uh, whatever upbringing they have to be because God is not. Our God is not a partial God. So the world says it's okay to have favorites. Now what happens when we have favorites? We've seen the conclusion of this, right? We think about this like, oh, well, yeah, don't have favorites. It's not that deep. But if you, don't, if you leave it and you don't really think about it, the devil will come and, and twist that thought process of it's not a big problem until it becomes a big problem. And we see that in history. We see that in American history, we see that in global history. When favoritism takes on the big stage, we see it in slavery, we see it in genocide, just to name a few big things that we've probably learned. Favoritism at the end of the day is sin, and, G and the devil is trying to use that to separate us from the love of God. So let's dive in James chapter two, verse one. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others. And James already sets the premise right there and then. He says, dear brothers and sisters, how can you profess your faith in Jesus that he has looked you straight in the eye, took away all that filth, all that pain, all your brokenness, and you say, I believe in that, and yet, during your everyday time, your everyday life, you show favoritism. James is just questioning. He, he points out this question like, how can that be? He presents the problem of favoritism, or in, in some translations, it's called the sin of partiality. The sin of partiality. And, and really, if you look into it, what favoritism it is and translates to is this, that we receive according to face. And that, that's just a... Short passage to means that we judge from the external. We as humans, since we're so visual, what we're gonna do, and we've all done this in here, me included, is when we meet somebody, we kind of have a quick judgment, right? You kind of naturally will pay attention to what they're wearing, how they walk, how they talk, their personalities, what they own, what shoes they got. I'm a big shoe guy, so if, like, if you got some kicks on you, that's the first thing I'm noticing. And James is saying, how can you judge somebody of your outside appearance. You can't. And it made sense because the age that James was writing to in this time was a very, very partial age. People were being divided and disunified over race, over faith, over religion, over uh, your status, how rich you were, how poor you were, if you were a slave, if you were free. Everyone in this time was categorized, whether they liked it or not. The, the only favoritism I would say standing up here that should be okay and is okay is favoritism 
of going against sin. Unfortunately, we're broken people, so that's not how it always is. So James, when he's reminding his people, the 12 tribes of Israel, he's saying, hey, remember when the devil tries to disunify you and put all these petty things of external appearances out. You need to remind yourself that Jesus died for you. And look, if you look at the verse again, he says, dear brothers and sisters. Interestingly enough, James wasn't just addressing everyday people. He was addressing a specific group of believers, people who've professed your faith in Christ. That, that doctrine wasn't their problem. Their heart was your problem. And just like in the last chapter of James 1, at the, the end of the chapter, he talks about a lot of incompatibilities within James. In James 1, he talks about the incompatibility of being double-minded and praying. You can't be double-minded and pray. And in the second part of James 2, which we're not going to go over today, he talks about you can't have faith without works. Not, Not in the sense of saving faith. And James is saying faith, James is saying that you are not safe by works, but you are safe for works. So he's saying that's not incompatible. And the last thing here is the incompatibility of having faith in Christ and then showing favoritism for other people. So my my question to you guys today as we go through this this text is, what are you partial towards? What is your own innate favoritism towards? Is it it a certain people? Is it a certain personality? What is that for you? We're going to continue in James 2, verses 2 through 4. He continues, James says, for example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. You give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? It, it, James continues and he sets this scene of two people coming into this meeting place, or also called the synagogue. During the times of the Jews, the synagogue was a place where they gathered to worship. For our cultural context, that's the church, a church building where we gather and worship. And, and James points out a rich guy comes in. I, in my head, I'm thinking like maybe a Travis Kelsey or something. He's pretty rich. Or Elon Musk, right? My man is blinged out. Um, Elon's not necessarily blinged out. Dude's like a black shirt jeans guy. But you get the point. He comes in, and then he points out another picture of a poor guy who just comes in. Maybe he looks like an average Joe. And he's saying, hey, naturally, our flesh wants to go to them and react and to serve someone of a higher status because what do you want when you serve somebody in that degree? He's saying, naturally, you want something from them compared to someone who might just be a regular old Joe. And James says, you can't do that. He says they treat the rich man with favor and the poor without. And we see this this example and we're like, okay, well, who cares? It's money. Like, we live in a really big financial age of crypto, cash, or Venmo, whatever it is. Money's normal. So you're like, D-Chan, like, money's not my thing. I don't care. Like, I'll treat everybody the same. Okay, maybe it's not money. Maybe it goes deeper. What is that? Is, maybe is it someone's personality? Are, are they too loud for you? Are they, are they too quiet for you? Or, or is it 
their influence. You know this person has more influence and you're like, I'm gonna go talk to them because hopefully I can gain some of that influence. What is that for you? It could just be the whole adage, we just don't vibe. We just don't connect. And it's crazy to think about this, but back in the 15th and 19th century, and you still see it today in very small examples, the church had a lot of disunity, right? And this one of the things that disunified the church that really was a picture, an applicable thing that you could see with your eyes was this thing called box pews. And if you don't know what a box pew is, or if you don't know what a pew is, you're sitting on a pew, and a box pew is essentially, think of your pew, look at your pew right now, everybody in here, think of a box. That's a box pew. Only thing with a box pew is there was a door. So if you were someone in that time, you were rich, you were affluent, you could pay somebody to go sit in a box pew. You literally go sit, open the door, sit with your fam, and you are separated from anybody else. No one else can go in that pew with you. Now, you can still find this if you look it up online in some maybe old churches, but realistically, we don't see this anymore, thankfully. Imagine just a bunch of boxes in the church. That'd be kind of wild. But the same concept still holds true. We might not have a box pew to sit in, but we do have spots that we always sit in, right? Like you, we, we love to sit in the same place with the same people and have the same conversations. And I'm not saying that is a bad thing at all. Hey, I'm a creature of habit. We're creatures of habit, so I do the same thing. But I think what James is trying to get to here is, hey, in order for you to fight off this sin of favoritism, you need to get out of your comfort zone. And what that means is, maybe reaching out to somebody that you've never had a chance to talk to because you thought y'all might not connect. Because you've made an initial judgment over someone's whole life from just the external appearance. And God is saying, and James is reminding us, Jesus died for everybody. So would you get out of your comfort zone to reach out to somebody? Because you never know what God would use with that first step. And realistically, if you think about it, the people group that James was talking to and the people of right now, there's not that much of a difference. And I would even bet to say, it feels like in our modern era of social media, we even have more ways to create division. It, it stops being about just class and, and race and, and gender. It becomes more of IG followers, influence, personalities, parties, who has what. Now we have the ability to make judgment calls online. You ever think about that? You ever just scroll on your phone? You're on, you're on IG, you're on Facebook. I don't know how many of you are on Facebook. But on IG or Be Real, whatever it is, and you, you're like, all right, let's, let's, I'm about to go hang out with somebody, do whatever. And you see this picture and their story. And, and this in this image, you have, you have the choice to make the full final judgment over somebody. Has anyone done that before? That's just natural human tendency. We have urges. We, we can have the ability now to make judgments, calls online. And by doing that, James stirs up this reminder that all our decisions 
have some evil criteria when we make judgment calls like this. When we show favoritism to somebody, we are wanting something in return. But I would, I would even say that this goes beyond just the rich and the poor. This passage talks about a deeper thing, and the thing is this. He's calling us to think deeper because if we make a judgment call and show favoritism towards somebody, we've placed a value on another human based on their external circumstances and not what Jesus values them as. This is a value problem, guys. And, and you will never look into another set of eyes in your whole entire life that Jesus did not die for. We continue in James 2, verses five through seven. He says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear. James reminds us, hey, although the world says, look at someone's outer appearance and this is how you judge them by what they wear, how much success, how much influence they have, James is saying Jesus judges them from internally. He's saying, didn't I pick the poor to be rich in faith? What that means, it's not a shot against rich people or, or, or that it's bad to be wealthy. If that was the case, you would have to take out a lot of the heroes of the faith in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. King David, Joseph, these were rich men. What he's saying is the poor of someone who has maybe less, has less to cling on to than Jesus compared to someone who might have more wealth. As you have more stuff, you have more materials, you have more reasons to not cling on God. But God throughout scripture has shown He has a special place and a consideration and a concern for the poor. In Psalm 72, verses 12 to 14, he says, he will rescue the poor when they cry to him. He will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels pity for the weak and the needy and he will rescue them. He will redeem them from oppression and violence for their lives are precious to him. Or Psalm 102, verse 17, he will listen to the prayers of the destitute. He will not reject Dear, please, time and time again, throughout all the scripture, we see God's heart for the lowly. Like I said, it doesn't mean being rich or wealthy is bad. God will use everything, but the poor have nothing to cling towards because their relationship with God is the only thing that can root them in this life. James reminds us the value of a human being is not in their external, but in their eternal because of what Jesus has done. And the crazy thing about this is because when we think of of favoritism and and how we're an external thing, I don't want you guys to think about when you think of Jesus Christ as he came down to earth. But in the book of Isaiah, it says that Jesus, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance. Nothing about him that would attract us to him. And so so my, my thought is, if Jesus came through those doors looking like an average Joe and you didn't know have a relationship with him, would you ask him to sit with you or would you ask him to go sit on the floor or stand on the side like who James is talking to? Something to think about. Continue James 2, verses eight through 11. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
But if you favor some people over others, you're committing a sin, you're guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the law except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's law. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but, not, but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. And what James says here, he sets up another rhetorical question. It's more of a rebuttal if someone, when he's, if someone was being called out by him. He says, well, James, I, I was just loving my neighbor, the rich guy, because it says it in Scripture, to love my neighbor. I, I'm just following God's word. And James says, that's good. And it's a reference to Leviticus 19, verse 15. It says, do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. And in that time, it was talking in the court of law, but it also pertains to our own congregation in this room. And I heard a pastor say this, is that, hey, I'll love my neighbor. For sure, I'll love my neighbor all day. Just let me pick the neighborhood. And he said, and what that means is, yeah, I'll love them. Can I just pick out who the person I'm gonna love is? It's crazy. Because true love and God's command and Jesus' command to love your neighbor means to love someone when it's hard, when, when you won't receive anything. And you have to put aside your personality differences, your belief differences, your action differences. James is saying that it doesn't matter if they're a believer or not a believer. They look like you or not, you love them. You don't got to like them. It's probably good if you like them, but you have a call to love them. This is one of the ways we can fight off favoritism. And he says in verses nine through 11, if you favor some over others, you commit a sin. You're guilty of breaking the law. And then he brings up two other sins of murder and adultery. And what that is, is James is trying to tell us, hey, when we fall short and we struggle with something, our human nature is trying to tell us that, hey, it's okay. We minimize it. We, James is trying to remind us that, hey, you naturally will minimize your sin, but will maximize other people's sin. And it's funny, if you ever watch a street evangelism video, um, there's a guy by the name of Ray online, and he uses a street evangelism tool. He asks people a couple questions. And he'll say, hey, how are you doing? How it starts up the conversation, and usually it goes into faith and the question of are you a good person comes up. And the person would say, yeah, I think I'm a pretty good person compared to other people. That's all of us, right? I'm right here guilty with you. I'm like, oh, I ain't that deep. And Ray says, okay, well, are you a liar? Or have you lied? And usually the person would be like, yeah, I've lied. I thought a white lie back in the day. And he goes, well, what do you call that? He goes, a liar. So you're a liar. They're like, no, I'm just somebody who lies. Or the next thing we'll ask is, well, are you a adulterer? He goes, um, I don't know. He says, well, Jesus says that if you lust with an, another person with your eyes and your head, you've committed adultery. And then the answer is, I, I guess I'm an adulterer. And the last one, he'll, he'll ask this is, have you ever murdered? And most people on the street will say no. And then, here he says, well, Jesus says if you 
have hatred towards your brother, that's considered murder. And the whole premise of this tool was to reveal that deep down, we like to think that we're a lot better than we truly are. That we might be struggling with something, but if it's something small, I'm good. But it's crazy because in Romans 5.8, God says, but God loved you so much that he died for you while you're still sinners. And the way we like to describe ourselves is we're good, like we're fine. But the way God describes humanity before relationship is interesting. I want you to think about yourself of like, well, what would I consider myself? How would I describe myself before I come to know Jesus? God says you're sinners, you're enemies of God. You're unwise. And the problem with humanity is we tend to forget where we came from. And James, in this passage, is trying to remind us, hey, don't play favorites, because God didn't play favorites, and he came for you. He continues in verses 12 and 13, so whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you'll be judged by the law that sets you free. There'll be no mercy for those who have, shown, have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. So James lists the problem, the sin of partiality, favoritism. He he's lists scenarios where these events might happen. He, he said, this is how the world views it. This is how it can attack you. And then he ends with this encouragement, this exhortation towards us. He says, you need to be reminded of to speak and act as though someone who's gonna be judged by the law that sets you free, that gives you freedom. And what that is, it's called the law of liberty that Jesus came and died for you. That without Christ as your answer, your only conclusion to life is eternity away from him. Because in reality, without Jesus, and if we play favorites, we make bad judges, right? Because we're, we're gonna pick anything that looks good to our own bias and our own comfort. And, and, and scripture says you've fallen into sin. You, you might not have broke the law of murder or adultery, but you've broken a law. James is saying you have broken a law, you've transgressed God's law, and now there's conclusion and a payment that needs to be paid. And this is when James says, remind yourself of the mercy that's been extended to you extend it to myself, that if Jesus died for you and gave you mercy and looked you straight in the eye and saw all your brokenness and all your filth and said, I will die for you. You need to extend that back out. That is what James is saying. Because we're the recipients of the grace of God, we need to show grace for people we might have differences with. So we just, finish James 2 in a short period of verses 1 through 13. And we've talked about the problem of sin, how God views sin, the consequences of that sin. But like I said, James is an applicable book. It's a practical book that God has given us to use in our lives. So I have three quick ways we can talk about on how to fight and combat this sin. Number one, if you're writing, devote your time to the word. Devote your time to the word Last week, Jared said that scripture, God's word, is a mirror to us. In James 1, verse 22, 25, it says, don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. 
You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. If you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. So devote your time to God's word. In Joshua 1.8, it says, this book of law should not leave your mind. And this book of law, which is God's word, is good for teaching, correction, for training in righteousness. As we spend more time in God's word, what happens is your mind changes as you listen and the Holy Spirit works in your heart. You see people the way God sees people. That's number one. Number two, get plugged in. Get plugged in and serve. And, and one of the things we love here at High Street is for y'all to get plugged in. If you guys ever want to serve, come to Next Steps. We can get you connected. You can be on the Greek team. You can hand out coffee, whatever you want to do. And the part of getting plugged in, and not just getting plugged in, but plugging in and serving is that you come at it from a perspective of humility that you're gonna serve other people even if you don't get anything in return. And as you serve with other people, you start looking and, and noticing people's gifts. I feel like we have such an incredible team that sets up young adults and everyone has such a cool and unique gift that God has given to them. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 13, it says the human body has many parts, but the parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, and some are free. But we've all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. As you serve with other people, you appreciate the gifts that God has given them. And the last one, it's probably one of the most important ones, is to pray. Not just pray, but pray for the renewal of your heart and your mind. And I say heart because there's a, an old adage that the most important inches in the life are the 18 inches that separate your head to your heart. Because it's one thing to think about it and to, to have the head knowledge to say, yeah, I get it. I don't, I don't favoritism's wrong. But it's a whole different thing when you understand what Jesus came, died for the person sitting next to you or six rows behind you and, and understanding like, this means something. And in Romans 12, too, it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. As we spend time in the Word, as we get plugged in, and as we pray, the Holy Spirit will work in us. And a part of prayer is reflection. And so my challenge to you guys tonight as you move forward is would you ask God to remind yourself of the mercy that has been shown towards you. Because here's the thing about mercy. It is one of the most important aspects of a human relationship because it is a direct indicator of repentance towards God. It's in this reflection we get reminded of the cross, that when Jesus was on the cross, he looked at us in our filth and our brokenness and said, it is finished and mercy was shown. So we have that call to do that on our lives with other people as well. I'm gonna end with this, Romans 3, verses 29 and 30. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was writing about how Christ took on our punishments. And in the last few verses of this, he says, kind of classy, he talks about God, he's like, is God only one way or the other? But no. And he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? 
Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. We don't serve a partial God. God is impartial. And it says in Romans 3, he came down 2,000 years ago to die for your sins and for my sins. If you're someone who walked through this door today with something that's heavy on your heart, whatever it is, I don't know. Life is hard sometimes. Some of us might have walked in with, with tragedy, with loss, with stress, with pain, with shame. And the devil wants to come here and, war- and really twist that and warp that and, and try to tell you that, hey, you're too far gone. You're not worth it. You've done that thing and that thing. God can't forgive you for that. And in the book of James and in this last passage in Romans, we get a reminder that God looks you in the eyes. He says, you are mine. You are my son. You are my daughter. Come to me.